This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome, I'm Jake Cantor. Coming down the Talking TV slipway this week, David Abraham warns that a privatised Channel 4 could be devastating for indies. Plus, BBC Three finally gets the green light to move online. Later in the show, we'll hear from writer and producer Tony Jordan about his ambitious BBC One drama, Dickensian. And in our third act, Christmas cracker Stickman and E4 comedy drama Tripped get the preview treatment. That's all coming up on Talking TV for Broadcast. At Maple Street Studios this week, broadcast editor Chris Curtis and Stephen D. Wright, producer par excellence. Am I, can I be an editor par excellence, please? You're, well, you're that goes without Chris, saying, you're Chris. Well, no. You're just the editor. I know. Never mind. One day. How are you doing, Stephen? As always, full of the joys of life, you know, up every day, excited. We're going to full war. Full of energy. Woo! All right. To war. <laughs> it's horrible. It's so depressing I could cut my wrist right Did you now. watch Hillary Ben's... I watched it. It, 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 it was a Churchill moment, but it was Churchill the dog. That's our politics quota. <laughs> fulfilled this week. Uh, let's head straight over to Horseferry Road, uh, where David Abraham, the boss of Channel 4, has been punchier than ever before about the potential impact of privatisation. The chief executive told broadcasts that changing Channel 4's ownership would be seismic for producers. He said it could open the door to in-house production and dramatically reduce the diversity of Channel 4's supply base. Chris. You did this interview. Mm-hmm. Come on, tell us about it. Privatisation of Channel 4 has been in the, in the air since the start of the year. but it, I've lost count of the number of times we've talked about it here. We've but. talked about it loads and people have been talking about it loads, but, but without any sort of formal structure in place. And now what's happened is John Whittinghouse decided, yes, he wants to have a look at it. They've asked Channel 4 some questions. The process has begun, but it's begun quite quietly. I'm not sure necessarily that the whole industry is aware that this, this thing is a live issue and it's happening now. It's no longer in the hypotheticals. It's now in the, OK, they are seriously investigating it. And Channel 4 is kind of caught in this position where it needs to do the right thing. It needs to focus on doing its job and trying to be the best channel it can, blah, 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 without necessarily taking a, an overt position on it. And yet David's kind of knows, and I think Channel 4 believes that that there would be these, these implications. What if Channel 4 behaved more like ITV or more like um, Channel 5. Not that there's anything wrong with how those broadcasters behave or anything wrong with commercial broadcasting. Perfectly reasonable. But but it would change that sort of ecology of having two not-for-profit broadcasters in the UK and uh, a broadcaster in Channel 4, which is tasked with trying to offer something a bit different. We've been thinking this week about the way the industry has responded to all of this talk, mm-hmm. and it, it's very nuanced, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the consolidation has had a lot of effects, hasn't it? In the sense that a lot of the big American companies that you would imagine would be interested in buying Channel 4 also own a big chunk of the production sector in the UK. And that would obviously have an implication on how they respond to those big organisations, how they respond to this this topic. So where you think some of those big producers might have a, a natural position to support a public Channel 4... That's compromised by the fact that they're owned by these big American companies who yeah, might be interested yes. in buying it. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, um, I wrote in my leader this week. I think that most producers on the coalface. No, look, there's there's a feeling. I would say the feeling amongst the production community, people who deal with Channel Four, is Channel Four is not perfect. That people are a bit grumpy, pissed off about its stance on terms of trade, but that people kind of get what Channel 4 is for. They still think it's got an important role to play. They still think that it takes their risk on new talent. 
maybe it should take more risks, but they think it does take a risk on new talent. They think it's more likely to commission an innovative format than probably any other broadcaster. Um, and those guys, I think, fear, fear that uh, a new owner wouldn't do those things. Are they compromised by the fact that their parent company might take a different view? I don't know if they're compromised, but it does mean that actual public statements of support um, or public statements of any sort of position have been thin on the ground. Does the f threat feel more real now yes, than, than it has ever before? Uh, well, after BBC Three has been sacrificed, this is the next one. And it feels incredibly real and incredibly scary because this is two... BBC Three and Channel Four are the two sort of diverse voices in telly that do take risks, that will go for unfashionable subjects or you know, boring-looking shows that may or may or may not turn out to be great. I mean, most of the time, they get it right. Most of the time, they do pr produce stars. They, I don't think they have a problem with new talent. I think the new talent gets stolen off Channel 4 mm -hmm. and taken to the BBC quite quickly. Um, so Channel 4 is doing a brilliant job and has done a brilliant job. The idea that the Tories are now sniffing around and thinking, oh, great, we can sell this. What for? That's my big question. What is this being done for? Nobody's asking for this. Nobody's crying out for it. The threat of a new owner... Is so great because it will decimate the indie community. Has um, what David said this week to broadcast has that has that resonated? I mean, you're a oh, producer. Yeah. I mean, I'm a I'm an aspiring indie. I'm about to start launching one, and the thought of Channel Four being owned by some homogenous company or whatever, who will naturally gravitate to a, a profitable model or whatever because that's what they do. Uh, they're not going to be interested in a little cute, kitschy eleven o'clock type show or whatever format this or. Something. That's the whole point of Channel 4. Uh, that was what it was set up for, to be, uh, uh, you know, independent and anti-BBC or uh, whatever. Um, and now, you know, 30-odd years later, the Tories who, cr who created Channel 4 are now deciding to kind of sell it off for money. And it's like, from an artistic perspective, it's horrendous. It's the, this is the worst possible news that you could ever give us. It's not a done deal yet. There's, there's still it's a not, lot it's of not a done deal. process to and... go through. And, and we know, you know, that uh, it will have to go through both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jesse Norman, who's the mm. chairman of the Culture Select Committee, told us this week that you know that they will want to look at any proposals to privatise Channel 4. So there's lots of hurdles to overcome. In some ways, I think the biggest barrier to privatisation is the Tories, the government thinking, is it worth the grief? Can they find the money that they want to get? It's a money thing. They do, you know. Well, look, people have different views. I think it's about the money. I just think they need to find a. Always about the money. They need to find. Um, they're trying to close the deficit, and each department's looking for for things that it can kind of offer up. I think Whittingdale thinks that a privately owned Channel Four could do uh, just as good a job as a publicly owned one, and this is his sort of contribution to 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 closing the the deficit. It'll have to go through the the, the Commons and the Lords. I spoke to uh, David Putnam. A few months ago now, a couple of months ago, and he said he thought there'd be huge opposition in the Lords, so that's a potential barrier. It was interesting, to Jesse Norman, what he said this week about, you know, they would want to they would want to look very closely at this. He didn't say there will be a full inquiry, but you would hope there would be a lot of scrutiny. And maybe that's when a few more voices might start to come out and say to the government, hey, have you really thought this through? Because I think there's the, is it worth the hassle? And also, if you can make a really compelling economic argument that says that the success of the indie sector would be damaged and that one of those creative industry success stories would be undermined by doing this, then that's something that potentially that's they, they, might, might, they listen. might listen to. Yeah. OK, uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about it many more times on Talking TV over the, over the coming months. Uh, but moving on, uh, 19 months after it was first announced, 
The BBC Trust has finally approved plans to move BBC Three online. The youth channel will gradually transition online from January, with a full fat digital proposition being made available at the start of March. Uh, BBC Three controller Damien Kavanagh told broadcasts that it was a relief to step out from under a cloud of uncertainty, and there is now a real opportunity to galvanise the production community around the channel. Stephen, you touched mm. on it earlier. Yeah, I've, um, for, for should, we, li- should we put the, the for the, listeners who can't see my face, I've got a pursed <laughs> lip at this day. <laughs> should, I mean, we've talked so much on this show about mm. the the rights and wrongs of the decision. Well, I mean, they're uh, doing they're, it now. They're, yeah, they're doing it. They're so, doing it now. So where so, do we go from here? Right, exactly. So yeah. now it's a question of do we now go to see Damien and pitch as normal and see what he wants. Uh, that's been the problem. When I was talking to BBC Three earlier in the year, it was all like, oh, you've got to wait, we've got to wait until we know, we've got to, we can't say anything about that because we've got to wait. And I think people started to give up on it. Mm. Um, and I think this is the big problem. Nobody knows what's going to happen. I mean, producers have no problem making programmes online or for terrestrial or whatever. Um, nobody cares about how it actually gets seen. You know, you're making a programme to be good. That's, that's what a producer does. But nobody really knows what BBC Three will be like uh, online, and um, and that's the big problem. So you know, if it's still exactly the same as it as it has been, then and and Damien says he wants you know X documentaries or mm-hmm. comedy series or whatever the hell it is, then we'll all carry on pitching and it'll all be as normal. But no one quite believes it. That's the problem. We're all a bit suspicious and a bit we- uh, sort of wary, um, and no one wants it to be worse or less budgeted or or or, or less uh, commissioning slots or whatever but everyone sort of thinks it probably will be and i think that's the problem we're all in a, we're all still a little bit under that cloud damien might have come out of it but the rest of us are still under that cloud a bit that's the problem it still feels very nebulous at the moment i can't picture it in my head we've written about it so much and yet uh, i i think it will only be when it launches that we have a real idea of what it's going to look like and how it's how it's going to feel and play they need with to get audiences. On, they need to get on the front foot definitely I, I i think there have been a few images of what a bbc3 homepage might look like but they haven't exactly been plastering them everywhere and really telling people telling i mean talking about the industry here forget even the viewers who pretty important in all in all, in all this they haven't re- they need to get on the front foot on that and they need to as um, Stephen said they need to do a massive charm offensive to really reconnect because what you know when i think about bbc3 um they've always they've always had great comedy goes without saying the drama's been good if sporadic their budgets got cut and over time it it, it became a case of relatively few number of dramas but generally quite high quality stuff what I think was fabulous about BBC Three was the sort of the factual stuff where they take a a topic that you wouldn't think young people were going to be massively interested in and just turn it on its head and, and, and create some sort of entertaining format. And I'm thinking back to, you know, years ago to shows like Blood, Sweat and Takeaways and um, and they did sort of anthropology through Last Man Standing and, think, and you know... Fuck off, I'm ginger. That one less so, Jake. <laughs> um, but, but they do really... They, they, and they've always done that, even now through like Stacey Dooley and Reggie yeah. Yates. Oh, yeah. and, you, and, and if you don't watch these things, it's really easy to think, oh, Stacey Dooley goes somewhere, Reggie Yates goes somewhere. They're really good programmes. I mean, my, my worry is... Is it going to be like iPlayer, which I look at sometimes, or will it be like YouTube, which I occasionally look at, or will it be like a viral where someone says, oh, watch this clip? Well, it'll be all you of know, those things. I and think it's that's, that thing that's, of, that's what they're trying to do. Well, exactly. But they're all, I'm all, they're all very, it's all very reactive. You know, I don't, I don't actively tune in to, to watch things 
online. I mean, Car Share with with uh, Peter Kay with was an iPlayer premiere, and I still waited to watch it on TV. You know what I mean? It's like, and that took a lot of effort to. to but even then, I still wanted to watch it on TV. Yeah. Um, I will watch the odd thing online, but it's a you know, and it's not like I don't like doing it. It just it's not my natural. You know, my fingers or whatever don't work. They pick up a remote. They don't pick up a mouse. There's probably, you have to forgive me, Stephen, there's probably a slight generational thing at at, at play here. Listen to me, young man. Picking my words (laughs) very carefully. I don't want to see that pursed lip again. um, (laughs) No, it's got a pipe now. I'm I'm now chugging around my pipe and stroking my grandfather beard. Sorry, we've got a Christmas fire. (laughs) (laughs) What what I think they really need to do is they, they need to... So it's clear that young people are on Twitter and Facebook and social media and, ve- and probably the Facebook, the, Facebook, the WhatsApp, I believe, <laughs> is, is, a, is a popular thing. But, you know, they need to... I love to re- the Snapchat. <laughs> Enough about your Snapchat activity, Stephen. Um, <laughs> uh, they need to get this content out to the places where young people are. And I think the other thing, because this strategy change and because this platform change comes also with economic cuts they are going to make spend less money on content they just are that's what makes me nervous about it i think that given the content's going to go down they really need to work hard at it and also probably we need to cut them a bit of slack early days because i you know they are going to have some teething problems so mm, it's not going to be an immediate success i, Steve, I, I mean my, my big worry here is that the, the the reason the money's being saved is for drama you know, BBC Three are going to try their best. We're, I think we're all in agreement. We're all going to support them. We're all going to keep trying to watch them or whatever. But the drama department don't really deserve a channel sacrificed on the altar of so-called high-quality drama. If you watch something like London Spy at the moment, which is one of the most well-budgeted but ridiculous series I've ever seen, currently causing a kind of complete Marmite reaction with the audience, who are starting to realise it is all smoke and mirrors and rubbish, it's costing millions of pounds. Now... They're sacrificing an entire channel for more of that. That's what really gets my goat. You know, if it was a if there was a real economic reason for this, if there was a real desire from young people to watch online, I think we'd all be in agreement. It's it's very spurious. It's very nebulous. It's a bit sort of hushed up and under the carpet, and we're all having to sort of deal with it. Damien Kavanagh was quite interesting about how they'll manage a relationship with BBC One and BBC Two this week. So they'll premiere the content on BBC Three. And then they'll effectively do a narrative repeat on either BBC One or BBC Two. And immediately after that narrative repeat, they will push audiences towards the next episode, which will debut on BBC Three online. Uh, and that, you could imagine, is quite a good symbiotic relationship if if, they, if that's the way they're going to go about promoting content. It was a big six. One of the big factors in making iPlayer a success, wasn't it, was that there was a period soon after it launched, when after every single big BBC One show, they just hammered you in the interstitial with a, with a go-to-eye go to player. They need to take that kind yeah. of... Uh, up with the next episode online, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, exactly. You know. OK, let's move on. A couple of commissions to get through this week. Uh, first up, and sticking with the BBC Three theme, uh, Sky One has snapped up Don't Tell the Bride. Uh, the pay TV broadcasters commissioned 24 episodes of the Renegade format, which will play out over two series. Well, no wonder. It's a it's a juicy hit, you know, and it will work on Sky brilliantly. Uh, I mean, this this is the problem, you know. These are the, the jewels that uh, the BBC are, are letting flush away. You know, no wonder the indies are, are taking their, their, their little uh, formats with them. It's, you know, it's, it's a kind of a non-story because this is what's, this is the result of killing off a terrestrial, uh, I keep saying terrestrial, I don't even know, a digital channel. Mm. 
that people won't, don't want their shows to be going on to something which they may not be seeing that much or whatever. And because of this possible risk of less money, less exposure, whatever, then people will take their hits away. So this has always gone on in telly. People have always taken things from channel to channel and uh, Top Gear was killed off and then brought back and became the most successful country. You know, these things happen. So it's a, it's a, to me, this is a marriage Sensible made in heaven, stuff. really. For, <laughs> oh, ooh, I like go. it. Uh, Alan Haling, who's the boss of Renegade, very interesting in broadcast this week, saying that uh, BBC One walked away from Don't Tell the Bride because it's skewed too young for their audience. Yeah, a bit odd considering we think that, you know, BBC One and BBC Two need to sort of pick up some of the, the well, slack. They've got, they've got new obligations, really, yeah, their service licences. So, so slightly odd. I don't know. The BBC was slightly less forthcoming about the, 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 the reasons for it. I mean, it's a no-brainer, as Stephen says, from Sky's point of view. You get a ready-made show. You Broadly speaking, you know it's got, it's got a fan base. They'll market the hell out of it. They'll, people will know it's there. And they'll carry on watching Sky. You know, the BBC have, have shot themselves in the foot a bit. They really have. Okay. Also worthy of mention is ITV's deal to bring ABC show 500 Questions to the UK next year for a four-part series. Stephen, you love a, you love a bit of entertainment to this? I do love a bit of entertainment. I mean, I, I haven't seen the, the, the original yet, so I don't actually know what it's going to be like. I've read the, the, the blurb and it sounds quite fun. I already thought, oh, I could be good at that. Um, but I actually like the idea of, are they going to put this in prime time? Is it, you know, some, it's something that we've not seen for a while, uh, big quizzes or big whatevers. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was probably the last one that was a big one. But that was, you know, 150 years ago or whenever. It sounds a bit retro, but it also could be quite a sort of radical step. And so... I'm quite pleased by the idea of it. Final word on this, Chris? Viva la game show. I, <laughs> I love game shows. There haven't been any game shows on telly for ages. I, I, do you know what? I just hope it's good. I mean, look, yeah. you know, if they find the right host and they ratchet the tension at the right level, um, it's got this sequential, you just got to keep getting, you can't get three questions wrong, you just got to try and plough your way through. I haven't seen it either. It was at MIP when they were marketing it. Big billboards everywhere. I mean, it's it's by two of the biggest names in American TV. It's Mark Burnett and, and Mike Darnell, so it's got huge pedigree. Fingers crossed. Good luck to ITV. Good. That's the news for this episode. Thanks to Stephen and Chris. Uh, now then, what would happen if you draw together some of Charles Dickens's iconic characters in one world? That's the question BBC One drama Dickensian will attempt to answer when it hits our screens this Christmas. Created and written by Red Planet Pictures boss Tony Jordan, the 20-part series reimagines literary giants including Fagin and Scrooge for the soap-loving generation. Jordan believes it is one of the most ambitious and rewarding projects he has ever attempted, and I caught up with the former EastEnders writer at MIPCOM in October. Uh, just a small warning, uh, Tony's language does get a little fruity at times. There's a reason why people all over the world know the character of Ebenezer Scrooge. He's actually, you know, it's just become a frame of reference now. And that's fascinating. So to take that, that character and then to take another character, someone like Fagin, that again, everybody knows the character of Fagin. And the one thing that Charles Dickens never did ever was to ever write a scene or to write anything with those two characters in the same place. And I get to write a scene with Scrooge and Fagin in the Three Cripples pub from Oliver Twist. Now, that's pretty cool. So, and I remember having that thought, and it, it was literally one of those writer's thoughts, which was, what if? You know, what if you did that? How, how weird would that be? Well, but would that work, and how would that work? And I remember having that, that thought process started over a weekend or something, or, or towards the end of a week, and me discounting it, because I thought, oh, of course, someone would have done that, 
and so therefore it's not new and original and I perhaps shouldn't be getting this excited about it and I ignored it for about a week later someone said to me um, oh, I, I talked to someone else about it and I said but someone's done it obviously so it's a bit and they said well I've never seen it if they have so we did a bit of research and no no, no one had ever taken those amazing characters and done their own thing with them so yeah I think uh, the youth would call it a mashup. <laughs> it's a Dickens mashup. Are you a bit daunted that you might upset super fans? No, um, <laughs> I I don't do daunted very well. Daunted's not my thing. <laughs> um, no, look, I I bring two things um, I think to the project. Um, one is an irreverence. You know, I'm not a scholar by any stretch of imagination. I left school when I was 14. I read probably more than a dozen books in my life. I have a love for Dickens characters, but not necessarily Dickens in a literary sense in that way. I'm not that smart. So with that comes a respect for him as a writer, because I think, you know, he's, he's clearly, Charles Dickens has more talent in his little finger than I've got in my entire body. So that brings a healthy respect for him as a, as a fellow writer. But it also brings an irreverence in as much as I don't know what I'm breaking it because I don't know what it is anyway. So I'm not held back in any way. I'm not self-edited in any way. And then the respect came in as, as I started writing the first few scripts is I thought, you know, I don't want to piss anyone off. Maybe I should talk to the Dickensian community and maybe tell them what I'm doing. They might like it. They might, they might beat me up if Dickensian community people do that. But look, when you're saying to them, we've all seen, I've seen Gillian Anderson and Helena Bonham Carter as, as Miss Havisham. I've seen the Mad Bird in the Wedding Dress a lot on telly and in film. I get it, I enjoy it. She sets fire to herself at the end. Happy days. I'm not sure I want to watch it again. But what nobody's seen before is how did Miss Havisham get to be like that? How did she get to be mad woman in wedding dress? What happened to her? Lead up to her wedding day. I think that's quite interesting. Danny Cohen commissioned it originally, didn't he? Yeah. Was it a bit of a risk, do you think, at that time? Um, look, I first talked to Polly Hill about it. Polly Hill's... Uh, She's now controller of drama, but she was um, head of drama for independence. And I talked to her about it, not expecting to be, it, for it to be a BBC show. And I told her about it. I said, but it's, obviously it's not for you because it's, it's like madly ambitious. Who, who did you originally think it was going to be for? Well, I don't know. I thought I was going to go to HBO or you know, somebody with squillions of pounds that could help me create this, this monster. And Polly said to me at the time, and Danny said it afterwards, this is exactly the kind of show that, that the BBC should be doing. Something that's, that's an original creative vision that a writer is passionate about, that is daring and, and exciting and new and fresh and something no one's ever done before. That's exactly what the BBC should be doing. So was it a risk? I'm, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how Dickensian could put the BBC at risk. And what about on the finance side? Uh, you said it was going to be expensive to make. You're being quite honest about that. How have you pulled together the patchwork of financing for this? Well, everything's kind of in context. In my head, I knew that in order to, to do the show that I wanted to do, I'd have to build the world. I never thought for a second I was going to be able to find a location that would give me everything that I needed. I needed to recreate Victorian London that included all the things and all the, all the places and all the characters from Dickens' imagination. That's pretty cool. I don't know any location manager... Um, not on drugs that could find that. So I said, we need to build it. We need to build it. I need to build the world. And if I build the world, I'd have to worry about night shoots because I could just turn the light off if I, if I build the world in, inside. I can control it. I can control, I can have fog, snow, mist because Dickens used those, the elements as characters essentially in his work. Obviously, I thought 
that that would cost fifty million pounds to build that. Basically, I'm talking about nobody's built the set we've built. Nobody's built a set like that for UK television ever. Nobody. It's a film set. It's like Harry Potter world in Greenford. It's amazing. Uh, but it didn't cost 50 million. <laughs> I had to make some concessions. I wanted the River Thames inside <laughs> with boats on it. We haven't got that. We've had to CGI that. So, look, we've cut our cloth. So, I think at the moment, the BBC are paying less tariff than they're paying for some of my other shows that I do with the BBC One. They've got a really good deal. And the slack has been taken up by BBC Worldwide. Obviously, I have a creative partnership with BBC Worldwide. And what I love about that is Red Planet is one of the uh, last true independents in the UK in as much as, you know, I have no major investors, I have no bosses, I have no, we're not part of anybody, and we're truly independent. To have um, a distributor that will invest up front to help us make that show so that we haven't got other voices pulling in different directions and then to get their money back when we finished... I think was a really cool thing to do. Do you think they're the only broadcaster slash distributor in the UK that can support a drama like this in, in, in the way that you're describing? And if so, do you think that will come under threat during Charter and Ill if there's a genuine chance that the BBC might have its legs cut off? There's two parts to that question. The first part is, uh, answer the first part is no, they're not the only broadcaster that does that. <laughs> um, we're doing a show um, which we're shooting in Cape Town called Hooten and the Lady for Sky. And that's fully funded by Sky paying a decent tariff and Sky Vision who are doing exactly the same model so that again I have one broadcast to deal with and it's a cool thing as I say because we are a small independent production company and it's easy to get swallowed up by HBO you know it's kind of it's tough to, to stay on your own two feet do I think that they look the, the whole chart renewal of the BBC Whittingdale is clearly is clearly <laughs> so I'm looking at DC's going please don't say it it's clearly it's not right in the head there's something wrong with the man, for fuck's sake. You do. I pay. I pay. I pay for Sky. I pay for Sky. All right. And I don't know. I pay thirty pound a month to watch a footy like everyone else. I've got ten pound a month subscription with Box Nation in case all the Harrison ever comes back. I don't know. <laughs> I must pay. I pay. I've got Netflix and I've got Love Hill or whatever. And to say that the BBC, um, you know, shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't have the license fee of fucking twelve pounds a month. And it's, you know, it's not, that's not BBC One, that's the whole of the BBC, what really, for £12 a month? And you think that's a bad idea? It's like, uh, anyway. So yeah, it's clearly something wrong with it. It's probably something, I've got the, all these images in my head and can't say any of them. Because um, the lovely Christine and Dunning's looking at me and saying, don't say that stuff. Um, so, uh, look, the BBC are really, they've, they're really brave. I remember trying to sell Life on Mars. Um, and we tried seven years to get um, Life on Mars off. And there were a couple of commercial stations um, that was like, oh, it's a bit risky. Because life, it could be a bit silly, couldn't it? <laughs> it could be a bit silly, flares and all that. It could be a bit like Saturday Night Fever. Oh, I'm really not sure. I, who, who was brave enough to make it? BBC One. I remember doing Hustle with them and saying, look, I can't, the only way I can make this show work is if I freeze the action at certain points and I have the actors explain the plot to the audience because <laughs> it's kind of complicated. And remove that fourth wall completely. And I couldn't have had that, you know, I had that conversation, it was BBC One. And they went, yeah, do you know what? It's your vision, go for it. And they're doing it again with Dickensian. That's the beauty of, of them. They have no, you know, they don't have those commercial considerations sometimes. So they can just take that, that leap of faith. Um, so yeah, you know, I'll repeat, I think BBC One have been amazing throughout the whole process. And you're doing half an hour episodes, which is quite unusual for drama outside of the soap operas, isn't it? Yes, unusual, but I love it. You know, um, and I think that 
I want to get out of this. Um, you know, and I've done it, and I'll do it again. But I want to get out of this. Everything's got to be six by sixty. It's kind of, can you do six? Well, yeah, I can do six, but <laughs> I'd like to do ten or four, <laughs> or could I do three, and or could I do thirteen? It's about what serves the project best. You can't take a, a transmission window and always uh, bend the creative to fit it. It doesn't work like that. You know, that's why some things are better as 290s. You know, some things genuinely are. And some things are best as 660s. With Dickensian, and again, this is about, you know, having a broadcaster with the ability to, to help you hold on to your creative vision. Dickens wrote serially. That's just how he wrote. Now you can like that or not like it. But that's how he did it. He had a publication called All the Year Round. He wrote episodes of his of his stories and cliff he had a cliffhanger <laughs> to make you buy the next copy. And his he him and Wilkie Collins, their motto was make them laugh, make them cry, make them wait. All right? That's the way he wrote. So the only way I could do this, the only way was as twenty half hours. And the only way I was never going to do it was as 660s on a Sunday evening, because that's not what I'm doing. I think it's event television. I think it's the biggest, boldest show I've ever done, because it's a creative ambition and a creative vision in its purest form. Are you going to, have, you, have you kept the infrastructure there, the, the, the set? And I presume the ambition is to carry on doing it if it's successful? I would love to keep the set up. The set is constructed of 27 two-story buildings cobbled streets, lighting, horses and real horses and carriages going around, around and around in circles, a pub, Satis House, law courts. It's huge. I would love to leave it up in case we want to go again because I think this is a show that can run and run. But the BBC have quite rightly pointed out that it's not their place to pay my rent <laughs> while I'm waiting to see if I'm recommissioned. So, uh, and they are quite rightly guarding the licence fee. And so now I'm going st- to strike it when we finish. Has there ever been a better time to work in drama? No, not for me. I'm having a ball, you know. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, we're shooting to Kenjin at the minute. We wrapped Death in Paradise on Friday. We're gearing up to um, shoot Hoot and Lady in South Africa for Sky One. Stopping the Name of Love, our big Motown musical we're shooting next year. I, we've got another four projects that I think are going to go in the next three months. We've just started our factual with Simon Rakes joining us from Channel 5. Oh, yeah. We're buzzing, man. You know, it's like, wow, we're, it's, it's all going on. And... Uh, so Red Planet's probably the most exciting time of, in my time in television. Given the company's getting bigger, does that mean you've got less time to focus on some of your passion pieces or is it all just passion? No, no, no I'm Pac-Man. I am Pac-Man. <laughs> we, got, we got a thing. It's, um, I mean, look, it's not just my stuff. People make, people, there's lots of myths about Red Planet, right? The, the, my favourite myth is that I rewrite all the scripts. Right, that's my thing. Yeah, you know, to, writers go to Red Planet and Tony, well, basically Tony rewrites all the scripts. Yeah, I wish... Um, which I, I, a, I find really offensive. I spent most of my career um, screwing about writers and producers pissing all over writer scripts and having them rewritten and giving shit notes. So I'm not going to be that kind of producer. Right? So I protect my writers and I look after my writers. And uh, Writers want to come and work with, uh, with Red Planet. That's why I'm working with people like Simon Ashdown and Sarah Phelps and Kate Brooks. And, you know, they don't, it's not, that's not a mistake. And then the second myth is that it only does my shows. Oh, that's nonsense. That's clearly not true because our output would never cope with that. I write exclusively for Red Planet because I own Red Planet and I'm not stupid. So why would I be writing for someone else? <laughs> that makes no commercial sense. But we only do things that we're really excited about. So, you know, I'm talking about Dickensian because it's my show and I'm talking about Stopping the Name of Love because it's my show and I'm excited about it. Um, but, you know, we've also got, uh, but Hooten and Ladies on my show, that's co-created. On our development slate at the moment, I'd say 15% of it is mine and 85% is other writers. So 
I am extremely passionate about the stuff that I'm doing for me, but I'm, I'm equally passionate about shows that we're doing with other writers. And the good thing about those shows is I'm not fucking writing. That's cool. <laughs> but what I get to do is I get to bring my clout, my passion, my experience with those other writers. You know, uh, Death in Paradise was created by Robert Thorogood, who'd never written for television before. So what I did was I said, oh, it's cool. So, okay, it's fine, it's cool. This is how we do it. And that's what you can do with good writers. You can give them great steers and say, don't do it like that, because that will be shit. Let's do it like this. All right, okay, so let's do it. And now, you know, and he's flying. And the more that Red Planet can bring on that talent, that's why we do the Red Planet Prize, to find that, those, those new writers, to find that new talent and keep us out of the gene pool that we all fucking use, where there's, you know, there's six old farts all swimming about in this same writer's gene pool. You know, it's like, and I included myself in that. You know, it's like Tony Freak, no, he's not. Paul Abbott, no, he's not free. Well, Jimmy's not free. And, you know, we're all trying to do it. We need to have some fresh voices. So, um, so Red Planet's about that as well. It's about finding people, not only as writers, but, you know, our, our head of production and business was a production coordinator when he started. Uh, Tim Q's executive producer of Deathly Paradise, you know, he started as a producer. We just kind of, everybody's growing within the company, me included, because I'm having to learn how to run an indie, which is scary at the best of times, even for people who know what they're doing. Uh, there's no way that we're going to run out of steam or anytime quick. Because, um, yeah, we're having a good time. We're having a ball. Tony Jordan there. Dickensian launches with a double bill on Boxing Day from 7pm on BBC One. Back with me on the talking TV sofa is Chris Curtis and Stephen D. Wright. Our first show this week is Tripped, E4's sci-fi comedy about two pals who get sucked into an adventure across alternate realities. Starring in between as actor Blake Harrison and BAFTA winner Georgina Campbell, the four-part series is made by Mammoth Screen and written by the missing creators Harry and Jack Williams. In this moment from the first episode, Milo is stoned at home when a man resembling his close friend appears from nowhere. Daddy? We need to talk. This is not the only world. There are millions of them, and in every Why single one, he tried to kill Broke into his lab to get stunned, and then found where this is a man. He's stumbling into his lab. He's been hunting us ever since. I'm saying to you that this isn't the only world. That means in every single one, he's trying to kill us. Kill us. Sorry, Danny, you're going to have to back that up. I zoned out for a second. What? How far? Oh, the beginning. Yeah, I took some killer mushrooms earlier. There's no time. You have to come with me. Honestly, you are competing with a lot of other stuff right now, which may or may not be there. Like, the guy behind you is sword, who I really hope isn't real. Stephen, do you want to start us on this? Yeah, I absolutely love this. I didn't think I would when it started. I thought, oh, here we go, a bit of a stoner kind of comedy. And then I just thought, this is amazing, because it started to really be funny. All the layers of kind of meaning and... Uh, multi sort of plot lines and things just got better and better and better and also the subject matter is quite dark you know full frontal nudity incest with your granny <laughs> drugs constant murder and violence plus a couple of nerds I mean you know what's not to love I, I really really enjoyed it I liked the, the sort of multiple narratives I liked the fact it felt original it felt like something I haven't seen before and it was very funny Boom. interesting oh <laughs> I didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, see, <laughs> you're accusing me of being old. No, I know. I know. It's funny, isn't it? And that's the that's why it's good to do reviews of shows because it so tastes like subjective. It? Come on, fight! I thought it fell. I didn't laugh. 
So oh, come I, I on. I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh much either. Oh, two, I'm in the room with two nerds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm the cool one. I thought it fell between too many stalls. Oh. Uh, I thought that the the whole sort of like, you know, transporter on your wrist, quantum leap kind of thing felt quite hackneyed to me. It um, felt like a kid's show from the 1990s. Oh, come me. on! <laughs> Maybe it's because like I take a load of mushrooms before yeah. I watch the preview. <laughs> I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I loved the fact that, to me, it reminded me a bit of Family Guy. Family Guy have done these kind of multiple universe mm-hmm. type uh, mm-hmm. scenarios. But it made sense. It had that sort of ridiculous quality. The little twists were I thought were good. And I, I started laughing straight away. You two obviously don't have sense of humour. That's basically that's a medical uh, uh, sort of condition. I think should be seen. Is that your diagnosis? That's, that's exactly. Brilliant. It's just us, Jake. It's just it's just us. It it did it just didn't click for me. I wasn't sure whether I was supposed to be nervous and anxious. Was I supposed to be roaring with laughter? Did I really care about these two characters? But not, you're obviously a depressive. I don't know what's going on with you two. So why why did you like it so much? It made me laugh. That's the whole point. I like like I, I mean, the thing that got me was the 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 gags were dark and were funny, and um you know and I also by the way I love Richard Gad who's playing a very kind of important role in this. I saw him in Edinburgh in the summer, and he is a weird, weird comic. And this is the perfect kind of vehicle for him. And what about Blake Harrison? Blake Harrison, I thought, was great in it. It's the thing, I I didn't... I mean, I fell in love with it about two minutes in. First two minutes, I was a bit like you. Oh, here we go, chin-stroking and a bit po-faced. Then suddenly, boom, it took off, and I just thought it was brilliant. Can't wait for it to come out. (laughs) I'm really, really... carry on watching the rest of the series. I loved it. I cannot wait. Chris, any closing remarks? I didn't love it. Okay. I, it's, it, you know, it's, it's. I think when you t- when you, when you talk about factual entertainment or whatever, it's easier to talk. It's easier to talk slightly more technically. I think for comedy, it kind of ultimately is, is much Does more it make sub- subjective. Yeah. So a hit for Stephen, a miss for me. Okay. Trip gets underway on Tuesday, the eighth of December at ten pm on E4. Uh, finally, this episode, a little Christmas treat. Uh, Magic Light Pictures, maker of the Gruffalo, has teamed up with BBC One again to produce Stickman. The story of a twig and his family is based on a children's book of the same name and features an all-star cast, including Martin Freeman and Rob Brydon. Here's a clip from the animation. After an encounter with a dog in a park, Stickman tries to reason with his new canine chum. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not a stick. Why can't you see... Who? I'm Stickman. Huh? I'm Stickman. Huh? I'm Stickman. Yeah. That's me. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and I want to go home to the family tree. Ugh. Hated it. <laughs> Hated every second of it. Could not believe how bad this was. Sat there thinking, what is going on with me? I mean, basically, like you did with the last one. I thought it was awful. It was for a three-year-old. It was only half an hour. Didn't half have to, an hour of torture. To... <laughs> it took forever. Yeah, it's a kid's show. I would have got a box of matches out and burnt him alive. <laughs> it was awful. And so, I don't know. I mean, maybe it is just, I've never, you know, I've never read the book. I don't have children. I hate everything about children. Uh, you know, I Heartless. cheer when the child catcher comes on and chitty chitty bang bang. I'm possibly not the right audience for this. I thought it was lovely. Ugh. It looked great. It, it did look great. I it, mean, it, it was. It's a. It's a children's. It's a children's thing. It's not a children's snowman. Thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I that's that. the market they're going for, though. Yeah, isn't yeah it? it is. Um, I thought that the the sort of jeopardy in it was quite pitched quite nicely. It was kind of you know it looked like 
poor old stick man sort of lost his family and it was all getting going a bit uh, down uh, downbeat and he managed to get back and you know that was that was quite nice um and it looked great there were a few nice shots comic shots where they flipped the perspective around and um when he, stick man's floating in the ocean and a seagull comes and lands on him and um it was quite funny he was on the beach and he was trying to escape from the from the beach concealing himself uh, as he as he scurried along it looked great you know, is it pitched at Stephen and I? No, it's not pitched at Stephen and I. It's, I mean, it's, it's young, obviously very young children, this. It's a three to five-year-old or whatever, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's not, or under tens or something. What I would say is the cast, obviously, the very high profile, because of the lack of dialogue. So the, yeah. I, I, I didn't realise that Rob Brydon voiced one of the characters yeah. until... Um, Russell we, uh, Covey yeah. was the dog we just heard, woofing. Yeah, and it's like, so, what? you know, you yeah. didn't need... Martin Freeman was perfectly nice because he had the most dialogue, even then only a few Six lines. Six lines, yeah. yeah. Stellar cast. Stellar cast, but I didn't realise it was them, underused. Jake. Yeah. Oh. Underused. But I thought that it, it, it looked lovely, and I think it's just, you know, it's an example of really high-quality animation, but ultimately the, the storytelling is pitched at a young, a young it's audience. Not, I mean, it's nothing like an Aardman animation. Well, I was going to say, how does it compare you know, to the likes of Wallace thing. and Gromit and Sean Well, Lee? I mean, uh, you know, Wallace and Gromit is a kind of Christmas Day special. Everyone sits down. That is a difficult one to, to watch if you are an adult. If you're a sentient being, you know, with a kind of a brain of a sort of eight-year-old, you will get bored by it. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's for young kids who obviously will love it, and, you know, they'll fall in love with the kind of adventure and all the rest of it. But for everyone else, God. I think if you adapt a children's book, it's that. It's an adaptation of a children's book. Whereas Wallace and Gromit, they kind of conceiving that story mm. when they create an original story. They're, they're slipping in a few gags for adults. I mean, there's a few visual things that are nice in this. There's no, there, there, there aren't many sort of verbal gags. All the gags are, are, are visual and they're, they're, they're pitched at children. I thought it was nice and, and, and friendly loving. I'm sure my nieces will, in, will enjoy it. Um, it was hard to engage on it on, on a huge level beyond, beyond that. How will BBC One get viewers to, to, to watch this carrot or stick boom boom oh, is that uh, a... I'm writing a letter of complaint terrible. now <laughs> to me for that gag no not for that to the BBC get rid of BBC 3 and commission the stick man that is a bad bad choice okay I sense we're at, uh, at an impasse on this as well yeah. <laughs> okay BBC One will air stick man at 4.45 on Christmas day Okay, that's your lot for this episode. Thanks to my guests, Tony Jordan, Chris Curtis and Stephen D. Wright. Thank you to you for listening as well. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe to us on iTunes and spread the word. Join us in a fortnight for our final episode of the year when we'll aim to deliver a bit of festive cheer with our famous Christmas quiz. Until then, I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill. Goodbye. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 